Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning. And we trust that since you have promised to be wherever we come together in your name, that you will be here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> you will no doubt have noticed already that I am not uh, the Reverend Dr. John D. Cope Jr., <laughs> despite his name being listed in the bulletin. That's a lot of, he's got a lot of periods in his name. Punctuation within the name is super cool. Um, I'm Nick. I'd like to say that I'm the new associate rector, and that will be true on January 1st, um, but I'm doing this one for free. Um, we're, my uh, family is here. We don't know any of your names, so please continue to introduce yourself again and again, because we'll pretend after a while that we do know your names, or at least I will, but call me on it. Um, I don't want to be that guy, but I turn into that guy because it takes me an embarrassingly long time to learn names, so please just say, hi, I'm Bob. It seems like there's a lot of Bobs. Um, so apologies in advance. We couldn't be more excited to be here in Louisville with you. Um, we had a wonderful Christmas amidst the packing tape and the boxes. We did get a free Christmas tree at Kroger, so we sort of feel like we're on the Louisville thing. And I sort of hoped, actually, that Coming to Louisville and having my first Louisville Christmas would change Christmas for me. Um, but unfortunately, it turns out that my Louisville Christmas experience is just like my Christmas experience everywhere else. I had just as selfish a Christmas in Louisville that I have had every Christmas for my entire life, um, which is looking at the giant stack of presents under my tree because I have three small children and knowing that only a very small number of those presents will be for me. <laughs> um, and it just gets worse every year. I, I, I remember clearly the Christmas m morning when the sort of slide downhill began. Um, it was the first Christmas after I had turned 18, and I, am, I was a child blessed with lots of aunts and uncles, so I got lots of presents every Christmas, and one year, it happened to be the year after I turned 18, I was one uncle short. All the other aunts and uncles had, as usual, showered me with gifts, and I was one uncle short. My uncle Richard uh, seemingly had forgotten to give me a present. He gave my sister one, um, but there was nothing under the tree for me, and it was surprising to everybody in the family, so much so that my mother called my uncle Richard and said, you know, you, you, forgot, you forgot Nicholas. And he said, no, I didn't. He's 18. <laughs> he doesn't get a present from me anymore. And it only got worse from there. And then, of course, there was the red letter day a few years ago when we got uh, the email from my sister-in-law, the worst email ever sent, which suggested that since we all had kids now, let's just get presents for each other's kids. So tragically, I had just as, as selfish an experience of Christmas this year as I do. And I thought, as I, was, as I was thinking about how to process my Christmas greed, which is really what it is, um, I thought there must be some way to spiritualize it, to 
make myself not feel so guilty. And um, I thought of the wonderful closing concert of the wonderful film, The Blues Brothers, which I'm hoping that everyone here has seen. If you haven't, you must um, run out and rent it this very day, or you can borrow it from me. I have it. We have free rentals, but insane late fees at my house. But Elwood, Elwood Blues, as he's introducing this big final show at the end of the film, and he's introducing the song, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, he says, please remember that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there are still some things that make us all the same. You, me, them, everybody. Everybody. And then he breaks into song. Everybody needs somebody to love. And that's true. Everybody does need somebody to love. But I want to go uh, one step further and say that everybody needs somebody to love them. This is what's true for me. I do need people to love, but it's a much more profound need for me that people love me. Now, I know that sounds a little selfish. It just happens to be the truth that I desperately need to be loved. And I suspect that you do too. This works out for me at Christmas in that as much as I like to give presents and see the sort of joy on someone's face as they open a carefully chosen gift, I sort of prefer the joy on my own face as I open a perfectly chosen gift for me. Everyone secretly wants presence in the same way that everybody desperately wants to be loved. But this leads us to the most profound question of human life, the question that we organize everything we do around. How do we get this love that we need so badly? How do we get it? And there's a couple different ways. The, the most common way that people go about getting love um, was elucidated by the great 20th century philosopher and poet Rick Springfield, um, who said in the song, Jesse's Girl, okay, you've heard this song, right? It's a song about a guy who likes a girl who's going out with his friend, Jesse. And he's trying to figure out how he can steal Jesse's girl for himself. He likes her. He's friends with Jesse, but not close enough friends. He doesn't want to steal his girlfriend away. And he doesn't, he's not sure why Jesse's girl has chosen Jesse above him. He's, there's this one great phrase or series of phrases in the song where Rick, Rick Springfield says, I'm looking in the mirror all the time, wondering what she don't see in me. I've been funny. I've been cool with the lines. Ain't that the way love's supposed to be? Now, I submit to you that this is how we go about trying to get love in our lives. This is the way we go about it. We attempt to become lovable so that people will love us. Rick Springfield says, I've been funny. I've been cool with the lines. Aren't those the kinds of things that I need to do to get somebody? to love me? Think about getting ready for a date. All the choices you make about what to wear, where to go, who to see, what kind of words to use. There's so much pressure about being the kind of person that someone could fall in love with. And if you can be lovable, 
somebody just might fall in love with you. This is what life is like. It's a tit-for-tat thing. You do this, and I'll do this. If you are lovable, I'll love you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's about reciprocity and conditionality. If, then. If this, then that. If I am lovable, then someone might love me. If I'm funny and cool with the lines, Jesse's girl might dump him and go out with me. Now, theologians call this force, this if-then, tit-for-tat, conditionality thing, they call it the law. And we read about it a little bit in St. Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning. Listen to what he says. He says, now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. There's some loaded language in there, right? Some heavy words like imprisoned and guarded and disciplinarian. Makes you think of rulers on your knuckles and chains and steel. But as harsh as they are, those words are actually totally appropriate for how we feel when we're living this Rick Springfield life. When we're trying to make ourselves lovable so that someone will love us. When we're standing in front of the mirror wondering what she don't see in me. And asking ourselves, what do I have to do so that he or she or they will love me? How can I get this love that I so desperately need? And if you think about love in the way that Rick Springfield thinks about love, you'll be spending a lot of time in front of that mirror wondering what people don't see in you. But I have good news for you this morning. Good news. Rick Springfield is wrong about love. Or at least he's wrong about God's love. In his letter, St. Paul continues, he does say that the law is our disciplinarian, but he says it was our disciplinarian until Christ came. Now, he celebrates, faith has come, and we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. You know what that means? It's unbelievable, but it's absolutely true. We no longer have to become lovable to be loved. Can you believe it? We no longer have to become lovable to be loved. Has anybody seen The Bachelor? This terrible show on television that I used to watch obsessively. So there's this man and like 25 women who are competing for his love. And how it works is they go out with him on a, they individually, at least at first. Well, at first it's in these giant groups. But eventually, one by one, they go on a date with The Bachelor. And at the end of the date, if he likes the woman, he gives them a rose. And this earns them the right to stay on the competition for another day. If he doesn't like them at the end of the date, he withholds the rose and they have to go home immediately. So 
they have to pack their bags before every date because who knows, at the end of the date you might have to go directly home, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And so they go on a date and the horrific thing about The Bachelor is that on the date the rose sits there the whole time. And this poor woman is staring at it, wondering what she has to do to get the rose. How lovable does she have to be to get the bachelor to give her the rose? And of course, the cold, judgmental light of the rose just destroys any possibility that love could ever blossom between these two people. But God doesn't love in this way. Imagine what I just said was true, that we no longer have to become lovable to get love. Imagine if the bachelor gave the bachelorette the rose at the beginning of the date, and then said, let's see what happens. The pressure is off. You no longer have to become something to earn my favor. This is what God says to us. Just a few days ago, we celebrated the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, at Christmas, the incarnation. And in a way, the announcement of the angel to the shepherds in the field is kind of like an emancipation proclamation, right? He says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy which shall be to all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born. You've been given the rose already. We are free from the Rick Springfield life. St. Paul says, the law was our disciplinarian, but only until Christ came. Now, we are no longer subject to that disciplinarian. We can walk away from the mirror, secure in the knowledge that God loves us on account of Jesus Christ, no matter what is looking back at us from that glass. And so ultimately, praise God, Christmas is about getting gifts. Or rather, it's about getting one ultimate gift. A love that doesn't ask us to be lovable. A love that doesn't require that we deserve it. So today, even though it's two days after Christmas and you probably haven't watered your tree since Christmas Eve and it's starting to get a little brown and there's paper all over the place and you're sort of wondering when is it okay to throw out the tree and gosh, won't the kids put away their presents already? I have another present to offer. A final Christmas present. The best one. And this one's just for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you do to live, thrive, and survive, a Savior is born for them, for me, and for you. Before any of us deserved it, He came, He lived, He died, and He rose again, all for one reason, to be the voice of God saying, I love you. Amen.